I'm Stephen Hundley, and this is the award-winning podcast, Leading Improvements in Higher Education, a service of the Assessment Institute in Indianapolis. Our sponsor for this season is the Center for Assessment and Research Studies at James Madison University. In this episode, we have a conversation with Ken O'Donnell, the inaugural recipient of a new Assessment Institute in Indianapolis Award for Excellence Related to High-Impact Practices, often referred to as HIPS. Ken is Vice Provost at California State University, Dominguez Hills, and one of the founders of HIPS in the States, a network of colleagues advancing the work of high-impact practices on college and university campuses throughout the United States. I know you will enjoy learning more about Ken's background and passion for high-impact practices during this episode of Leading Improvements in Higher Education. As we kick off season four of Leading Improvements in Higher Education, I am thrilled we have the one and only Ken O'Donnell with us today. Ken, welcome to the program. Thanks a lot, Stephen. It's great to be here. Well, I'm delighted you're here. And, you know, longtime listeners know that we always begin each episode by asking guests to tell us a little bit about their background and sort of maybe a bit about the career trajectory and what people do in their current role. So, Ken, we're going to ask you to do that right now. Calling my career a trajectory probably gives it too much dignity. I sort of lurched from project to project, but it turned out okay. Um, When I was in college and graduate school, I had no intention of ending up in higher education. I was mostly a writer. I wrote movies in graduate school, in film school, and then for a living a little bit after that. Uh, And then started teaching screenwriting, which just turned out to be really fun. And so I did that on a part-time basis, non-tenure track, for a couple of years And just the more I got into colleges and universities, the more fun I found it. And so I just sort of drifted into this after about six or seven years at Chapman's Film School. um, After switching my faculty contract, I went to the state level of the California State University system uh, because I liked public higher education in particular. It has a a mission around access and equity that, that resonated with me. And I spent a few years there, and then I came here to a campus. Now I work at California State University, Dominguez Hills in Carson, California, not far from Los Angeles. Um, And so I I didn't really ever aim to end up here, but it turned out to suit me very well. And Ken, if you wouldn't mind elaborating a little bit about what you do currently in your role and how that's informing some of your work related to high-impact practices. Sure. Uh, My official title is Vice Provost. That Definition can vary from campus to campus and even on the same campus from year to year, depending on what needs to be done. Uh, That's some of the fun of the job. In my portfolio, the most stable parts are institutional accreditation, program quality, learning outcomes assessment. I also have a chunk of responsibility for academic resources like the budget and faculty time and our academic spaces. And I spend a lot of time thinking about high-impact practices and how we can engage students more deeply and authentically in what they're learning. So I I would say those are the main 
constant areas of my day-to-day job. But as is true for a lot of us, uh, all of that comes off the rails when something comes along like a budget crisis or a global pandemic. And then you find that a lot of your time day-to-day is spent on things that don't appear anywhere in your official portfolio. So I'd probably call it instead of a third, a third, a third, it's more like a quarter, a quarter, a quarter, a quarter. Well, Ken, thanks for sharing your background. And as we were just acknowledging uh, that we've talked about the concept of high impact practices, and that's something we're going to spend a lot of time talking about in our conversation today. High impact practices, as we know, are sometimes referred to as HIPs. So Ken, for our listeners who may not be as familiar with HIPs, tell us a little bit more, give us some context. What are high impact practices? Why are they important? And what are their main goals? High impact practices as a name refers to a group of activities that have been found to deepen learning, improve persistence and graduation rates, and close equity gaps. They're practices that include things like undergraduate research conducted with faculty, participation in learning communities, community engagement, service learning, capstone courses, and work-based learning like internships. That can sound like a random collection of things thrown together, but what they all have in common is an emphasis on real-world settings, typically group activities that are purposeful and unscripted. So when you think about a research project, you have a question in mind that you're looking for an answer to, but you're not confident going in you even have the right question. And a lot of the answers you get along the way may surprise you and help you reshape that project. Similarly, if you're taking on a project for a local nonprofit organization to strengthen the community around your campus, you don't really know where it's going to take you. And that kind of learning, that unscripted made up on the fly, done in groups, oriented toward a purpose, turns out to be very powerful. There's more to recommend it than you get with learning the way most of us think of it as the conventional, what I thought college was going to look like. In movies and television, when people show college and coursework, it's almost always in rows of chairs bolted to a floor Everyone's facing the same direction. They're all listening to some wise person at the front of the room. Um, You can still learn that way. And in the hands of a gifted lecturer, it's not bad. But there are a whole lot of other ways to learn that are, on balance, more powerful and more likely to engage the students who most stand to benefit by earning a degree. That is, the populations that have historically been underserved by formal education, ethnic minorities, students who are the first in their families to attend college, those who are socioeconomically disadvantaged, eligible for Pell federal financial aid. All of these groups, when they participate in high impact practices, are likelier to retain the learning that we want them to, are likelier to continue into the next semester and all the way to graduation, and are likelier to apply what they learned into future settings in their lives because they've learned to apply it in so many varied settings while they were still in college. You asked about where they came from. A lot of this thinking is owed to one individual, George D. Koo, who had been at the National Survey of Student Engagement 
And those of you who uh, know the Nessie probably think of it as a survey instrument that's administered to freshmen and seniors in college. What George and his team found by evaluating the results on these surveys was that the students who reported participating in these activities were much likely also to report higher learning and improved persistence. After his publication, which came out in 2008, uh, with a lot of promotion and help from the Association of American Colleges and Universities, AACNU, a lot of us looked into it and ran our own analysis of those results using not just student self-reported evidence, but also institutional data we could get our hands on to corroborate the student reports of improved persistence and narrower equity gaps. And to the extent that we were able to duplicate the efforts, they, the results held up. And this was, as I said, 2008, around the time of a big push nationally called the Completion Agenda around getting more students to graduate and better serving students from diverse populations. So the timing was very good. The big boost in assistance and promulgation and promotion from AACNU was very important. But really, we owe it all to George Koo, who for the first time was bundling these different activities under a common category, a common name, so that it revealed patterns we hadn't noticed before. Thank you for sharing a little bit about what high-impact practices are and why they are important. And you've mentioned, of course, purposeful and unscripted as, among other things, key ingredients and key um, benefits resulting from this work. You also mentioned uh, AACNU, the American Association of Colleges and Universities. I invite listeners to visit their website, aacu.org. Likewise, you mentioned NESI, the National Survey of Student Engagement. I invite listeners to visit their website, nsse.indiana.edu. And coincidentally, uh, colleagues from both AAC and U and NESI have been prior guests on this podcast, Leading Improvements in Higher Education. I invite listeners to consult episodes from previous seasons for those topics. So, Ken, let's continue learning more about HIPs by discussing their evolution, as you were alluding to, in higher education. Um, you've talked about George Ku's important work. Let's continue discussing how high-impact practices have grown, developed, and changed over time. You were referencing 2008 as a key milestone year. What is the knowledge base that helps inform our work with HIPs? Tell us more about some of the scholarly contributions you yourself have made in enhancing our understanding of high-impact practices. Sure, I'm happy to, and I'm glad to hear you. Uh, first of all, that AACNU acronym for those keeping score at home, I referred to it as an Association of American Colleges and Universities, which was its former name. They've since na uh, rechristened it American Association, because while the association is American, the member organizations come from all over the world, and they wanted to celebrate that. So thanks for that correction, Stephen. Um, on, the, on the arc of the history of HIPS and that 2008 watershed year, um, that's really the way to think of it. It starts long, long before 2008 and continues afterward. Before George's publication and his insight that these different practices have different elements in common and some common benefits, these practices had their own very long, important histories. 
We've been doing undergraduate research by that name for many decades. Learning communities, depending on how you count them, could go back to the Middle Ages. Um, it's important not to overstate the, the novelty of high-impact practices. The framing is new, but the educational approach is not. Um, some people say that it was first crystallized this way as a set of good pedagogical practices under John Dewey in the first part of the 20th century. But so help me, I, you can see things in Aristotle and Plato that, that suggest the same. As far as where it's going, that's a good question. Um, the original publication and the original framing emphasized particular practices. I named capstones and internships. Community engagement is another one, says undergraduate research. There was a list of 10, and they corresponded to particular items on the set of Nessie questions. Soon after that, I co-wrote with George a follow-up publication that looked at ensuring quality and taking high-impact practices to scale. And that came out, I think, in 2013. My own contribution to the scholarship, as you asked, in this book, my name is on it, but I didn't really have much to do with the part that people have found very useful. That was all George. And what he did was identify eight attributes of high-impact practices that they all seem to have in common. So stepping back from that list of 10 practices, capstones, internships, et cetera, and asking what are the teaching qualities that seem to make a difference is a valuable move. Some of those qualities include time on task, purposeful effort, interacting with people from different backgrounds, asking students to make a public presentation turns out to be very powerful. One of the things that's freeing about that list is that it gets you away from a checkbox mentality where it's tempting for administrators to say, wow, they say we should have learning communities, we have learning communities, what's the next challenge? Mission accomplished. Well, no, the thing that, that George will emphasize whenever given the chance is that it only works when they're done well. And that list of eight qualities help, helps educators ask ourselves, are we doing these well? Are we actually doing a practice that should have a high impact, or are we just buying into the label? The other thing that's freeing about that list of eight qualities is that it lets you let go of those 10 practices. Aside from asking yourself, am I doing these 10 things well? You can ask yourself, what else at my institution is characterized by these qualities of good educational practice? And it may be something that's not on that list because it doesn't even exist at other institutions. There's a handful of those where I work now at California State University, Dominguez Hills. They would hold up under scrutiny by comparison to those eight qualities of good teaching. They're not on the original list of 10. They're not one of the questions on the Nessie. And frankly, we don't care. We're going to track them on our own anyway because we've seen that they have those kinds of values. I think as the work in high-impact practices goes forward, it's going to shift increasingly to that question of what makes any practice have a high impact? And secondly, and very importantly, how do we know? 
And that's why this the fact that this podcast is hosted by the Assessment Institute of all organizations is so valuable for us. Not that anyone thought so at the outset, but it seems now that the central question around high-impact practices is a question of assessment. When is it valuable? When is the learning deeper? How can you be sure? And then a, a kind of sibling question to that, can you duplicate it? Is it repeatable? Is it scalable? We think these practices are. We think we can grow them and get them in front of more students. But as I'm sure a lot of our listeners know, anytime you take something good and try to scale it, you may find that really what you had wasn't a good practice, but a single talented educator or a single cohort of students that was especially involved. And so assessment turns out to be the key, not just to defining the high impact practice up front, but also to confirming that you're scaling the practice with fidelity and with equity. And thank you for sharing more about high impact practices, their backgrounds. And I'm paraphrasing you here. You mentioned that the framework may be relatively new, but some of the principles are indeed timeless. I would also mention, I believe you're being a bit modest around your own scholarly contributions because more recently, you and colleagues have also produced a book entitled Delivering on the Promise of High-Impact Practices. You want to talk a little bit about that publication and its uh, contributions as well? Thank you for mentioning it. And on this one, I will be um, hopelessly boastful. So (laughs) so thanks for calling that out. Um, I co-edited this book with Jerry Dade at the at IUPUI, the same institution that hosts the Assessment Institute. Our co-editors were Carlene Vandezan, John Zilvinskis, and Jillian Kinsey. And it came about because we had been hosting a conference series that we found valuable. And we were concerned that all of that thinking around high-impact practices, how to assess for them, how to scale them, was available only to those people who had a travel budget who could go to a conference. Uh, We just thought they deserved a a wider audience. And so we approached publishers about getting it into print. The book is with Rutledge. It's available now as a purchase online. Um, And it collects articles from a couple of dozen different institutions around the country with different enrollment profiles, different missions, but united by this interest in how we can take that seminal thinking and act on it. There are a couple of challenges to that that I think are worth sharing. When you ask students after the fact, were you ever in a learning community? The quality of the data you get back is is fraught with peril. They may not know exactly what you meant by learning community, or they may know what you mean, but forget they did it. Institutions would like to get around that problem by coding into the student information system what is and is not a learning community. And that would give us the chance to not have to ask the student. We could just run a report. We could query a data set and say, oh, look, these were the ones who were in it. Everyone else wasn't. Let's compare their graduation rates. Let's disaggregate the results. Let's control for other variables. All the things that you can do as a responsible social scientist become available to you with more depth once you keep better track upfront on what you're delivering. A lot of institutions are wrestling with that challenge. I should back up a, a step. There's a moral dimension to all of this 
because the early findings were that even though historically underserved populations benefit disproportionately, they're also less likely to participate in these practices in the first place. And as a friend of mine once put it, if we know what works for students and the students aren't getting it, that's an educator problem. That's not a student problem. And I think that's really well put, but it makes it incumbent on us to keep better track of what is and is not a high impact practice so that it can be coded into student official academic records, transcripts, enrollments, registrations, not just for the sake of reporting, but for the sake of advising to make sure that we're directing this really good stuff to the people who most stand to benefit. And because so many different people are wrestling with those same basically administrative questions, we thought it made sense to take their efforts and collect them together in a book. Um, and so my contribution there was as a co-editor, we divided up the chapters. We each took the lead on various chapters and worked with authors to make sure that they could really illuminate what they're doing in the best way possible and the most useful way possible for other educators wrestling with the same questions. Dan is describing Delivering on the Promise of High-Impact Practices, a book he and others co-edited. It's a publication from Routledge. Ken also has contributed to another Routledge publication, the recently released second edition of Trends in Assessment, Ideas, Opportunities, and Issues for Higher Education that my IUPY colleague, Caleb J. Keith, and I co-edited. Information about both of these books is available, and the link to the publisher's website is included at our website, assessmentinstitute.iupui.edu. And a few years ago, you and several other colleagues formed a group known as HIPS in the States. You alluded to this in the answer to the previous question. HIPS in the States is a network of individuals interested in advancing the work of high-impact practices throughout the country. Why was this group formed? What are its goals? And how can listeners engage with HIPS in the States? Thanks for asking. Uh, I have to say, it. Um, a little bit like my answer to tell me about your career. This one did not at all go where we were expecting at the outset. Um, as I mentioned about the impetus for the book that we published, it seems like there are a lot of colleagues out there wrestling with the same handful of questions around high-impact practices. We know we have a moral obligation to deliver them better. We believe they work. I'll tell you as a, a firsthand classroom instructor, I've seen them work. I, I know that these uh, wraparound experiences, these real world settings are very powerful, but we don't, we haven't figured out how to deliver them consistently and fairly. And that didn't seem like a question that could be answered by the authors of the Nessie or the people who work at AACNU, all of the people we owe this giant debt of gratitude to are not on college campuses in the way that we are. Like they're not, they're not there like messing with the database, trying to figure out why is this field not reporting what I need it to report? How do I even describe for my colleagues what, what's important about their work? That's hand-to-hand -hand administrative combat 
that you kind of have to do it to know how to do it. And so we wanted to form a temporary emotional support group for educators wrestling with high-impact practices, especially in the state-funded public institutions. Because unlike smaller private liberal arts colleges or the elites, we are very resource-constrained. We are set up essentially on a early 20th century assembly line model to produce an educated citizenry. And under our constraints, credit hour funding, the way faculty workload is tracked, the way transcripts are evaluated, it's very hard to do good work inside those tiny boxes and, and really change the student experience. And so we thought so many of us are up against the same sets of challenges and contextual constraints that it would make sense to bring us all together a couple of times and just compare notes. And then we'd all get to meet each other and then we could stay in touch on our own. So we pictured a three-year conference series. The first year was in 2018 in California. Then in 2019, we did it again in Kentucky. And then in 2020, right before the pandemic, we met uh, in Texas. And originally the Texas meeting was going to be the last one. But it's been a humbling experience. All those questions that we were asking at the beginning, we're still asking. We have some decent answers for them. A lot of them are in that book, but there's a lot of work still ahead of us. And so we kind of looked at each other and thought, okay, this isn't going to, this isn't going to be over in, after three rounds. Uh, but we also couldn't just keep wandering from campus to campus. We needed a home. And Stephen, that's when we were extremely grateful to you. Uh, high impact practices in the States, anyone who wants to join us now can by coming to the Assessment Institute. We're now a dedicated track there, one of the larger ones. We meet every October. There's no end in sight. No one is saying three and done anymore. Um, instead, we just do what we've been doing. We put together you know, breakout proposals for each other. We see what each other is up to. Um, and the one thing that I'll tell you that was very gratifying at one of the conferences uh, sessions from October, I was pretty blown away by how far along an institution in Florida had come in getting their high-impact practices reliably validated, stabilized, offered the same way more than once, uh, coded into student records, advised, touted for students, uh, I think made requirements for degrees. I said, holy cow, you guys did it all. And they gave me this look like, well, dummy, it's because of this group. Like, where do you think we got all these ideas? And that was very gratifying to just, it was kind of a reminder, oh, yeah, we have higher ed conferences for a reason. That That's the point, is to sort of all come together with the open questions we're wrestling with, uh, speak to each other candidly about what's working and what's not, and then stay open to suggestions from our peers. From a, quoting you, a temporary emotional support group to a sustained and thriving track uh, with the Assessment Institute in Indianapolis. I, as chair of that uh, entity, am very delighted HIPS in the States is part of the Assessment Institute. So, Ken, uh, we're keeping you busy not only each October at the in-person conference, but we also know that leaders of HIPS in the States have recently concluded a year-long five-part free webinar series 
focused on high-impact practices. If you wouldn't mind, tell us a little bit about some of the major topics that were presented and discussed in this free webinar series. Sure, I'm happy to. And this is another case where because we have the same handful of urgent questions uh, and different ideas about people around the country who have good answers to them, we were able to bring together uh, colleagues who could talk about their work in ways that we thought others would find useful. The series began with a look at some new research findings from the Society for Experiential Education. That's SEE.org. And there's a committee as part of that society just for research and scholarship. And they are looking into the benefits of experiential education in ways that are very similar to the questions we're asking about high-impact practices. Um, so we shared findings from that group with uh, Patrick Green, who leads that uh, subcommittee, and Christina Phillips and Bill Heinrich at Orbis Mindset, uh, just to compare research findings and see if there were things there we could use. From there, we went on to a session with uh, student affairs colleagues um, that Jillian Kinsey moderated, along with John Zolvinskis. Uh, we talked with uh, teaching and learning centers. Jerry Dade and Carlene Van de Zand did that one. I spoke to some provosts at the fourth session about how they're using academic affairs administration at the division level to drive support for high-impact practices. And then the fifth of the five, we didn't have any guests. It was just the five of us talking to each other about what we had learned in the year since publishing the book and across the course of that webinar series uh, that we just thought was notable and might inform future work. And as describing the free webinar series offered by leaders of HIPS in the States. And yes, listeners, you yourselves may take advantage of this free webinar series by visiting the Assessment Institute's website, assessmentinstitute.iupui.edu, where the HIPS in the States recordings reside. So, Ken, let's talk about what all of us can do, all of us, regardless of our uh, specific role or context. What can all of us be doing to advance high-impact practices throughout the higher education ecosystem? How can administrators, faculty and staff members, our alumni and community partners, and yes, even students themselves, what can all of us be doing to champion HIPS in our respective contexts? Gosh, that's a good question. Uh, it's one I ask myself daily. Um, I, I will tell you this candidly, Stephen, and I, it's something that you've heard me say before, but I don't mind sharing it again to a broader audience. I, I think higher education is largely a mess. Um, we inherited structures that worked okay at the time, but were grabbed on the fly under duress. In the late 19th century, Total enrollment in colleges and universities in the United States was around 50,000. Today, there are half a dozen individual institutions that are bigger than that. And total enrollment around the country is somewhere between 15 and 17 million. That's just a lot of people to educate. And the things that we know work for learning the close contact with faculty, the frequent feedback, the time on task, the effort. They're still the things that work for learning, but we set them aside in our rush for growth around 100 years ago, replacing them 
with mostly lecture delivery, expecting students mostly to sit, listen, remember, and repeat back, and mostly interchangeable courses, three credit hours at a time that were modular, that could be essentially put together as if on an assembly line so that the maximum number of students could go through with available resources. The challenge with that approach that we find today is that you can serve the maximum number of students, but saying they went through is, I would say, an open question. A lot of them don't. A lot of them never finish. They drop out because it's so insipid. It's so uninspiring and so hard to apply to real life that they smell a rat. They think, you know what? This is only about the credential at the end. I'm not in here for this BS. I got work to do. And we never see them again. And then the ones who do graduate, I think the jury is out that the education is all it could have been because it's been so blanched by the process of industrialization. Against that backdrop, it's pretty easy to feel despair. You can look around at all of the ways that the bureaucratic assumptions we inherited constrain us against meaningful reform, against making education more valuable, more worth the student's time. What all of us can do to get from where we are to a better place begins extremely small. Anytime you're involved in a powerful educational experience, an advising session if you're a student, uh, a seminar if you're an instructor, and I don't mean to just privilege the small ones, you can have powerful educational experiences in massive, massive rooms with students broken up into teams. Anytime you're doing something like that, notice it. Ask yourself, what made this so effective? And then that assessment question, how do I know it was effective? What are the tells? What are the things that are, are revealing actual transformational experiences that were brought about on purpose by the educators? And the more of those tiny sort of pointillist contributions we can recognize for each other and surface and illuminate, the better our prospects of connecting them to each other in a new normal, in a new status quo that privileges real world contexts and wraparound experiences and deep learning that can be transferred into other settings. As administrator, that's at the teacher and the student level. Call it out. Make sure your administrators know. As administrators, what we can do is be sensitive to such messages, such signals of outlying effectiveness. We want to support them wherever we find them. We want to funnel resources in that direction. And we want to ask ourselves, how can we make this part of the official institutional history of this student on our campus. We have transcript data, we have co-curricular transcripts, we have projects like the Comprehensive Learner Record that are all groping toward some future where a fuller picture of student learning exists. That's within reach. That's as easy as an e-portfolio. The transcript was created as a single sheet of paper that would fit in a folder in a file cabinet. Well, these days we don't work with paper or folders or file cabinets. There's no reason the story of the student experience at our institution needs to be so 
shallowly summarized. Instead, we should go for nuance. We should go for a full, authentic accounting of the learning that happened with us. And I think the more we can get back to that truth about what makes education work, the more we can recapture those students who tried college and thought, you know what, this is just a racket. I'm going to go somewhere else. We can bring them back, but it means being more honest with ourselves and seeing past some of the structures that right now look like they would be very hard to overcome. Yeah, and I appreciate you uh, perhaps interrogating a little bit about higher education as a sector, but also in doing so, reminding and encouraging all of us how we can take incremental and small steps to lead to transformative outcomes for our students and others. So as a follow-up, I'd like to tighten the lens just a little bit and maybe bring in that resource question you've been mentioning uh, throughout our conversation. And let's talk specifically about how do we reward and recognize the work associated with high-impact practices within and across our institutions? Given the, you know, the time, the energy, the effort that people are expending and and taking uh, up to be involved in these activities. How do we leverage high impact practices as powerful learning interventions? And how do we ensure that this work is valued? What um, considerations are needed to build, say, a culture of HIPs on our campus? Gosh, thank you, Stephen. That, that's a really, really good question. It's an important one. I'm going to start by saying that learning and education, despite the you know hundreds of millennia that our species has spent in this area remains largely mysterious to us. It's an opaque process about how brains develop, how people take new situations and respond to them in ways that are useful and productive and satisfying. We're getting there. Certainly, brain science is coming very far. Um, our our institutional structures still have to catch up, but because it's so mysterious. We are one of those sectors that relies a lot on reputation. It's just very hard to look at the labels on the side, you know, the ingredients on the, the label of a college campus and say, that's the one I'm going to pick. It's just not that transparent. And so reputation can be used to our advantage. If you're a student hearing this, and if you've had one of those powerful educational experiences, make sure you put it on ratemyprofessors.com. Make sure you put it into your course evaluations. If you're a faculty member and you haven't yet served on a committee for retention, tenure, and promotion, you will, and you'll be evaluating the files of your colleagues who will have to report to you on their teaching, their service, and their research. You want to find the people who are able to blend all three, who are able to make classroom teaching consequential engaged, service-oriented, and research-driven. Such people exist. Such practices exist. High-impact practices facilitate work on those fronts. An important thing we can do in the way of enhancing institutional reputation is by building those expectations into retention, tenure, and promotion priorities. Finally, you asked about money. There's not enough of it to go around, not anywhere. Uh, certainly, grants and philanthropy can help. But I would encourage people who win philanthropic grants or research grants to promote high-impact practices to take the money to do two things in particular. One, build in sound research practice up front. 
ideally with the help of third-party consultants who can serve as a referee on the question of what works best. Second, use those temporary resources to try testing a new permanent model of resource allocation that will support your most engaging practices because the grant will run out. And we're all standing here at institutions that would be perfectly recognizable to a time traveler from the 1930s because all of that really promising grant-funded work evaporates and you're left with the same look to your class schedules, the same kind of transcripts, the same kind of course catalog. It doesn't have to be this way. But changing it means building the capacity for change into every temporary opportunity that comes along. Yeah, and is encouraging us to build cultures supportive of high-impact practices by rewarding, recognizing, and indeed resourcing this work. During the 2023 Assessment Institute in Indianapolis, taking place in late October 2023, I will have the privilege in my capacity as chair of the Institute to present you, Ken O'Donnell, an inaugural award. This award is entitled the Award for Established and Enduring Excellence in the Field of High-Impact Practices. It's a brand new award for us, of course. So, Ken, what does this honor mean to you? And what advice might you have for our listeners as they either begin or continue their journey related to HIPS? I'll tell you what that award means to me changes every time I think about it. Uh, the one constant is how really moved I am. Um, Stephen, you said I was being humble earlier when I said I haven't contributed a lot of scholarship to this field, but I have to tell you in, in full candor, I don't think I have. I'm I'm not a dyed-in-the-wool scholar. I, As I said earlier, I didn't aim to get into higher education. I don't think of myself that way. Um, mostly what I've been is a cheerleader and an advocate. Um, I, I believe strongly in the liberating power of education. I believe in the, especially the power of experiential education above all. And so the prospect that an award like this in the long term would be associated with me personally is an enormous honor, just enormous. I'm also sometimes struck, you know, I said uh, my my view on this changes every time I think about it. Sometimes I, I'm struck by how meaningful it is when that comes from peers. Um, it's one thing to get recognition like this from a distance or from a jury of people who've never met you. But this is different. This is a bunch of people who all had a, a shared need that I was able to help illuminate and and then help them find each other. And and that part I will take credit for. I'm not a scholar, but I'm I'm a pretty good uh advocate. And, and that means a lot. The peer recognition from people who know best what the value is, is just enormous. Um, and then the, the last thing I'll just end on is sometimes it's just flat out weird. Man, it's, it's just, it's, um, it's a little bit of an out of body experience to have something named after you like this, but it's also just flat out great. 
Well, Ken, you certainly are an advocate. And even though you may be humble in your view of the label scholar, I know I speak for many of us when I say that this award, the award we're talking about, the Award for Established and Enduring Excellence in the Field of High Impact Practices, is very well bestowed upon Ken O'Donnell. As we have just acknowledged, you have been working with high impact practices for a while. So let me ask you to, again, sort of look to the future and talk about where you think high impact practices are going in the coming years. What are some of the challenges and changes you feel are associated with this work? What are some unanswered questions that remain? And we'll end on a good note here. What gives you hope for the future related to high impact practices? Well, thank you. I think the future is going to be pushed a lot by the crisis we find ourselves in. About three weeks ago in the New York Times, there was an excellent summary of the reasons that Americans were losing their confidence in higher education. It was in the Sunday magazine. Um, It was stuff that I think most of us were already vaguely aware of, but assembled like that in one place. It was very sobering. Um, confidence levels in the value of a degree have plunged. Faith that uh, institutions are giving it straight to students are, are trustworthy is also going down. A lot of people are questioning the value of college, especially as costs go up and student indebtedness rises. There are too many stories of students who started, racked up debts, didn't finish, and then ended up even worse off than they would have been if they had never tried. I think against those uh, existential threats to higher education, we will be more motivated than ever to right our ship in ways that are, are meaningful and lasting. And I think that means bringing experiential education and high impact practices into the center of what we do. Right now, at best, those are asterisks and footnotes on a traditional transcript and the main course is coursework. It's the list of topics and lecture subjects. In the words of one registrar, it's a list of everything the student has forgotten. We can do better. I think the future is going to show us doing better. I think we'll we'll bring powerful education into the mainstream, and the less powerful but expedient ways of organizing education will be relegated to the sidelines. Because honestly, if all I needed to do to learn was sit and listen, then I could do that on YouTube. The thing that gives me the most hope that we'll get from here to there is honestly the work that I've been doing in this area for the last 10 years or so. I think the research base is getting stronger every day as institutions learn how to track these practices, code them into student records, and evaluate the results. We're no longer where we started, where it was a cleverly grouped set of survey responses. This is actual quantitative institutional direct data. It's evidence of effectiveness. The other thing that gives me hope is the conviction and the passion of the colleagues that I've met doing this work. There is honestly no shortage of commitment and imagination driving this. I think it won't take us as long as it could have to change to a new normal, a new status quo, because of the commitment and integrity and and just passion of the people behind the work. From asterisks and footnotes 
to conviction and passion. Thanks so much for talking about what gives you hope for the future of high impact practices. As we draw our time together to a close, let me end by asking you to leave our listeners with a brief final thought. So Ken O'Donnell, what words of wisdom or inspiration would you like to share? Uh, I have two. I would say, first of all, thank you to all the people listening to this. If you made it this far, if you're interested in these things, then you and I have a lot in common. Um, it was probably evident in the way Stephen was asking the questions, but Stephen is passionate and very interested in these things too. He asks deeper and more meaningful questions than I ever get asked uh, elsewhere, and it means a lot. His attention, your attention. So just thank you. And then the other parting thought I'll have for you, and Stephen, you may be saying this too, but I sure hope we see our listeners at the Assessment Institute. There is just nothing better than in-person, on-the-ground contact with people who are asking each other the same questions, who can give each other help and moral support, and who can even sometimes come up with a better answer than the one we came in with. Well, Ken, thank you for uh, your remarks, uh, both during the podcast and, of course, at the very end here, your final thoughts and your acknowledgement. I would invite listeners to, of course, continue to connect with you, the colleagues related to HIPS in the States and affiliated with that group. and of course all of us at the Assessment Institute. And we're recording this episode in early October in advance of the 2023 Assessment Institute. So if you're listening to this after the 2023 Institute has passed, fear not. We have Assessment Institutes in Indianapolis scheduled through 2030. You can learn more by visiting our website, assessmentinstitute.iupui.edu, where you can connect with HIPS in the States and other colleagues such as Ken. We've been speaking with Ken O'Donnell, an award winner, a scholar, an advocate, and indeed a friend of high impact practices. Ken, thanks so much for your time. I really, truly have enjoyed our time together. Thanks, Stephen. You too. This has been Leading Improvements in Higher Education, the award-winning podcast service of the Assessment Institute in Indianapolis. Learn more and access other episodes at assessmentinstitute.iupui.edu. Our sponsor for this season is the Center for Assessment and Research Studies at James Madison University. Learn more at jmu.edu slash assessment. Our podcast producers are Chad Beckner and Angela Bergman, with original music composed by Caleb Keith. If you know someone who might enjoy the podcast, please encourage them to give us a listen. We appreciate your help in spreading the word. I'm Stephen Hundley, inviting you to join us again for Leading Improvements in Higher Education.